This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The United States Supreme Court's conservative justices have been busy challenging Democratic guardrails. The court has a 6-3 conservative supermajority, courtesy of former President Donald Trump, who appointed three right-wing justices. It's no wonder the court has dramatically lost popular support. Now, as these justices take up a case that threatens the voting rights of people of color, Julia Peter of the Center for Popular Democracy offers her solutions to restore the legitimacy of the nation's highest court in a story for Yes! magazine. Julia is co-director of advocacy and mobilization at the Center for Popular Democracy. She's held various organizing and campaign roles over the past 15 years, including helping to organize the Kavanaugh protests, leading the center's work around reforming the federal judiciary and building the organizing project, The Bird Dog Nation. Welcome to the program, Julia. Thank you for having me. So first, let's talk about this case that the Supreme Court has taken up, uh, which you write about in Yes! magazine. You know, a lot of uh, ordinary Americans aren't necessarily following the ins and outs of every case. So tell us about Moore v. Harper. Right. And I, it, it's no coincidence, I think, that, you know, these things kind of tend to happen in the dark. Um, but the reality is this is a case that will have real ramifications on our democracy, our right to vote, et cetera. So Morby Harper is a case out of North Carolina, which I'm actually uh, from currently in New York City, but was raised in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, but anyway, it involves um, lines drawn, you know, by the state legislator, essentially gerrymandering, um, in which the state Supreme Court said, no, you know, this can't happen. They drew lines that would basically ensure that they stayed in power. Um, but then now the Republicans are going to the U.S. Supreme Court saying essentially that the governor, the state Supreme Court kind of has no right to stop them here. So, you know, is this a case about gerrymandering? Not really. You know, it has implications on the maps in North Carolina, but the question at hand is so much larger. And it's really about the power um, that state legislators hold and this kind of theory that they hold so much power that they have the right, again, to kind of manipulate our elections, to undermine our votes, and that essentially the state courts and then governors would be powerless to stop them in this. You can see, you know, the, the, the consequences of this case are just potentially huge. You write in Yes! magazine that this uh, theory on which they're basing this attack um, on the state Supreme Courts is uh, been debunked. It's really, you know, considered to be a fringe theory. Uh, I mean, if, if it were true, it would suggest that uh, state level Supreme Courts have no uh, power to affect uh, elections, which is bizarre because the Supreme Court itself has insert, inserted itself into federal elections, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, to call this a theory is almost giving it too much clout, right? This is just a false notion, really. You know, there are checks and balances in place for a reason, and certainly the state Supreme Court and governors are part of that kind of checks and balances system. And to kind of undermine that um, and to say that that you know, state Supreme Court somehow supersede that, supersede that or above that, you know, is really just an affront to our democracy and just, you know, not true, which again, it's scary. Why is the Supreme Court then even hearing this case, even considering this? Um, because it seems just to go against, you know, everything that we know to be true in terms of the checks and balances in this country. So what exactly is the, uh, 
Supreme Court, uh, are the Supreme Court conservative justices saying, um, you know, is, is the case, are they saying that, that it should be entirely up to the state legislators to decide upon things like district lines, um, which is, of course, convenient, given that a majority of state legislators, uh, legislatures are controlled by Republicans? Right. So, you know, and at the Center for Popular Democracy, and I think many others will agree that, you know, Republican strategy, like their path to victory has involved and does involve voter suppression. So really, this case is just another example of Republicans trying to remain in power in these state legislatures and then potentially beyond. Like this is just, uh, you know, campaign strategy for them, really. So the oral arguments were heard in December. I think, you know, people say not to weigh in too much based on like the questions that the justices asked. It's it's really kind of up in the air how the decision is going to end up falling. Um, we'll hear the decision really anytime now. Uh, most probably we'll hear it towards the end of term, which will be the end of June. Although giving the jobs leak last year, I, I really don't know. It seems like, um, you know, could happen really anytime. Um, and I think, you know, we can be hopeful that the outcome in this decision, like it would just be so egregious, you know, for the court to side with the state legislators in this case. But again, I would have said it would have been egregious to overturn Roe v. Wade. So I, I really don't know, but it is important to remember, we can be hopeful about this case, but this isn't the end. You know, there are other cases, certainly that will come in front of the court in the next few years. And this 6-3 majority is not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and this is really just one of a long, you know, many attempts to kind of undermine our democracy. Obviously, the Supreme Court has been slowly rolling back the Voting Rights Act for some time. So, so just to review, the Supreme Court has a 6-3 majority, three of those six conservative justices. So a third of the court was appointed by President Donald Trump, the most white supremacist, authoritarian president in history who has had the least respect for the rule of law. Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, he got to appoint three justices who have permanent tenures to the Supreme Court. I mean, they can stay there till they decide to retire. They're all relatively young. Um, and uh, this is, you know, supposed to be part of an institution that is nonpartisan. But of course, it's not. So give me a sense of how, just a brief overview, because it's a very long story, of how the extremist right wing in this country has influenced the Supreme Court. Um, the various ways in which they've shaped it? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, also not for nothing, we're talking about justices confirmed by presidents who weren't popularly elected. So, you know, this doesn't, I don't think it's a, you know, good act on democracy to show justices that weren't, you know, aren't popular. But the reality is this has been going on for decades. I mean, Trump had tremendous success, you know, working with Mitch McConnell to confirm over 200 judges overall in our federal judiciary, you know, really kicking the balance uh, to the right in a lot of places in our lower courts, you know, and also our higher courts. But this is a decade long process in the making. There's been lots of sort of dark money groups behind this, uh, the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation, et cetera you know, have really been working hand in hand with McConnell and others to put in place uh, judges to kind of uphold um, 
you know, the right wing strategy. So this takeover of the courts is not an accident. It's been, you know, meticulously kind of carried out by the right. Uh, recently, there was an article in the uh, New York Times about the Supreme Court Historical Society, which was uh, which is a, a nonprofit organization uh, that basically corporate donors and other wealthy interests can donate money to and uh, has influence on the court. The Supreme Court is not supposed to be influenced by moneyed interests. Uh, tell me about this and why it hasn't made a bigger impact. I mean, this should be a huge story because it is akin to corruption. We, we point this out in other nations as being evidence of corruption, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so much dark money on the right going to controlling the Supreme Court. It's it's super egregious. And part of the work we do at the Supreme uh, the Center for Popular Democracy is to kind of shine a light on these bad actors um, because it's true. And it, you know, they go into law schools and they you know recruit young law students and promise them like you know a path to judgeship. They literally you know have lobster dinners and bring like do this recruiting on campus. So it starts very early, and you know like you said, there's just tons of money being flooded into this. And you know Donald Trump confirmed over 200 judges. You know is that a list that Donald Trump had in his head? I, you know I think not. I think you know the list of these judges, of course, you know he's, he's come a federal from judge, is not a Supreme Court justices. He did three Supreme Court justices, but you're right. There's hundreds and hundreds of federal judges that also have lifetime tenures. Right, and and so these just these judges that we're seeing be confirmed under these Republicans have ties to all these different organizations. And um, you know I mentioned the Federalist Society earlier. That's another huge actor. The Center for Popular Democracy, um, working with some other groups in our affiliates, actually took over their annual dinner that they did a few years ago. They do this huge fundraiser um, in Union Station. Um, that particular year, Kavanaugh was the keynote speaker. So a lot of the same folks who came out um, to protest his confirmation hearings actually were able to get into their ceremony and interrupt his speech. Just trying, you know, and you know, thankfully some of the clips of that did go viral. People were, you know, hearing some of these names. You know, people don't know Heritage Foundation, people don't know Federal Society, people don't, you know, so anything that we can do to get this to kind of educate the public on these bagged actors is really critical. And in the end, you know, a lot of corporations that we all, you know, Google, etc., are funding these organizations. So anything that we can do to look at, you know, corporations role in funding, um, you know, all these dark money groups is crucial. So let's talk about what we can do about this. Um, there was some talk, um, especially around uh, when Biden was being nominated and uh, entering into the presidential election of uh, 2020, that he might consider expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, some of that talk was revived after the court overturned the Roe v. Wade precedent last year. We have nine justices that get to yeah. declare and you know make these binding seemingly decisions that can then only be overturned by an act of Congress. And Congress is so bitterly divided and partisan that it's really hard for them to come together on anything. Uh, so there was this talk of expanding the Supreme Court, uh, the right wing like to call it stacking the court. But short of that, what are some other ways or even including that? Uh, is that a, is that a pathway to re-legitimizing re the Supreme Court? Yeah, I would love to talk about expanding the Supreme Court. I mean, there's a few things that we can do, but, you know, at the Center for Popular Democracy, we really 
strongly believe the most critical and the most essential would be expanding the Supreme Court. You know, we call um, on Congress to add four seats to the Supreme Court. We were one of the first national groups to come out and support, and we've done a lot of work um, trying to you know, move this legislation. There was actually a bill introduced last Congress in um, 2021, uh, the Judiciary Act. So we're now waiting, which would add just a very simple, you know, like one sentence bill that would add four seats uh, to the Supreme Court. So we're now waiting for that to be introduced into this current Congress. Um, but the reality is, you know, sometimes when we talk about these changes, some people will say, you know, yeah, stacking the courts, Republicans have already stacked their courts. So, but as, you know, people kind of look at this as kind of an extreme measure, a radical measure, but that's really ahistorical, right? The size of the Supreme Court has changed over time. There's nothing magical about this number of nine. When the Supreme Court, you know, was initially set up, there was actually six justices, which matched the number of federal circuit courts, which at the time were six. Um, I think it's like the last five times the Supreme Court has changed. It's been in relation to the number of circuit courts. So, you know, for what it's worth, we currently have 13 um, federal circuit courts and only nine Supreme Court justices. So there's a bit, a bit of a mathematical argument there as well. But of course, we believe in adding four seats because of this need to rebalance the court. You know, as you said, these judges are young. There's no, you know, this current court could be in place for a while. Um, and so it's really critical to kind of fight against what is now really one of the most conservative courts we've seen in recent history by adding four seats and asking Congress to meet this moment and expand the court, adding four seats, I think is really doing exactly what, you know, the constant, how the system was set up, what the constitution designed for Congress to do. What about- and There are other things. Well, I was just gonna ask you, what about term limits? Uh, why should Supreme yeah. Court justices be on the court for a lifetime? Absolutely. And I was I was going to talk about term limits as well next. I mean, that is also critical, right? People shouldn't be sitting on the Supreme Court for decades. We believe in term limits 100 percent. You know, the one thing about term limits is that could take 18, 20 years to be enacted. It would be important because it would help with this like political grab, this partisan nature um, that has, you know, turned into the Supreme Court justice vacancy fights. Important to remember that Mitch McConnell, speaking of single-handedly essentially changed the size of the court for over a year, you know, refusing right. to confirm Merrick Garland. So term limits are essential, but, you know, what, think about what potentially we could lose in the next 20 years. Um, you know, adding term limits alone isn't going to be enough. Is there an argument, however, that uh, term limits could uh, subject Supreme Court justices to more lobbying because if they term, um, you know, out or there's the concern of a revolving door like we see among members of Congress? I mean, that's, uh, of course, in addition to the fact that we're already seeing influence on the Supreme Court, um, even though they are there's a lifetime uh, term. Right. I mean, I, like you said, I, I think that that's an issue now. Um, it might surprise some people to know that there is no code of ethics currently for the Supreme Court, wow. um, which is, yeah, pretty wild to consider um, that this is really our least accountable, you know, part of our government. So, you know, it's definitely, I think term limits can coincide with legislation around a code of ethics, you know, setting rules in place in terms of, you know, future lobbying and things like that. Um, and as it stands right now, there is no code of ethics and we've seen some, you know, what I would consider to be some pretty huge ethical breaches just in the past year. Um, potentially Justice Thomas's wife playing a role in, you know, planning an insurrection against her government. Jane of course, Thomas, the news, yeah. 
Yes, Jenny Thomas. And the news that somehow was kind of a blip on the radar, but was actually a huge deal. The idea that Justice Alito um, leaked a decision years back around the Hobby Lobby case to big donors to the Republican Party who are wanting that exact decision. And of course, we're still, you know, there's questions around the Dobbs leak. So, you know, there's these huge already ethical um, breaches happening in the Supreme Court, unfortunately, no uh, code of ethics. A Supreme Court justice can be impeached. It's a similar process as impeaching a president, but, um, you know, hard to do without the code of ethics. So uh, let's also talk about what it will take to push any of these things through, because again, as I mentioned, um, you know, if it was easy enough for Congress to pass the Judiciary Act, it would be easy enough for Congress to overturn um, or legislate decisions that they don't like the Supreme Court having made. Um, so all of this also involves taking on the fact that our Congress is not as democratic as we'd like to be. It is not very functional. I mean, the Supreme yeah, Court is too I, functional, but it's a conservative right-wing majority and Congress is not functional enough. Yeah, I'm, there's a lot to that question, a lot of important points. I mean, I'll first just start talking about like, how do we pass this? You know, we're hoping the Judiciary Act will be reintroduced soon. Will it pass in the next two years under Republican control? You know, no, I don't know what we'll see in the next two years if the you know speaker fight is any indication. I think a lot of chaos, gridlock, et cetera. But what we can do is focus on building support among the Democrats in the House so that when we do win back control, you know, we're ready for committee hearings and ready to kind of move this bill through into law. So there's a lot of, you know, lobbying, there's a lot of bird dogging and different strategies that we can enact. Um, and unfortunately, the Supreme Court is doing making it easier for us. Every egregious decision, I think, moves people closer and closer to the realization that expanding the court is critical. So if folks want to get involved, one thing to do is just check out birddognation.org. We spend a lot of time if people are like, what is bird domination? Um, bird dogging is really just acting, asking elected officials or candidates, you know, to do what we want, usually in person and in public. So sometimes um, that's holding the elevator and asking Senator uh, Flake, you know, to not confirm Brett Kavanaugh during his hearings. That was, you know, our former executive director, Ana Maria. Sometimes it's just raising your hand, you know, at a campaign event and a town hall and asking a really solid question. Obviously, as we get closer to the next election, campaign events are going to pop up everywhere. And a lot of folks running for office are already in office. You know, look at the state race that or the Senate race that we'll potentially see in California, you know, to talk to Schiff and Katie Port, whatever. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to really directly one on one talk to your House representative in a very public way. So we'd love to help. Um, people do that. You can check out birddognation.org. Um, but it's definitely, it's a long-term strategy. Again, it's not going to pass in the next years, but this is a really good time to continue to build momentum. And then also to remember that we need, you know, a lot of help still on the Senate side, pushing senators in the right direction. We have some key senators like Senator Warren, who have been great spokespeople um, for this cause, but there's still a lot of work to do and also to remember that, you know, we still have the Senate. So while, you know, Biden is in the White House, we need to be focused on confirming as many lower court federal judges as possible. This is a process that doesn't involve right. the House. 
So senators need to put their heads down, get to work and confirm as many judges as possible. And we're looking for a really diverse slate of judges. Of course, you know, Biden was able to confirm Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, a really important first um, on the Supreme Court. Honestly, pretty embarrassing that we're still hitting these first. A lot of firsts happen also in the lower courts. Um, but it is a sign that Biden administration is, you know, this is a critical issue for them trying to diversify our courts. And also in terms of professional diversity, right, we're seeing, you know, we don't want corporate lawyers on the bench. We want lawyers like Katanji Brown Jackson, who spent time as public defenders, you know, civil rights lawyers, labor lawyers. So, you know, Trump was able to confirm over 200. We need to at least, you know, match and go higher than that number to try to rebalance the lower courts as well. Well, I want to thank you so much, Julia, for joining us today. We'll post a link to a Bird Dog Nation project uh, from our website, as well as to your Yes Magazine story. Thank you so much. Thank you. My guest has been Julia Peter. She's the co-director of advocacy and mobilization at the Center for Popular Democracy. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.